It was March 9th, 2017, when Preet Bharara, the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, got a voicemail message that President Trump wanted to speak to him. It was, Bharara would later say, a disturbing message. Why was the president calling him? Was this an effort to influence Bharara about an ongoing criminal case or to co-opt him and ensure his loyalty? Barrara consulted with his deputy and, as is now well known, chose not to return the phone call and then was summarily fired the next day. But before that happened, Barrara considered a different route. He would return the phone call and secretly tape the president. It was the same idea that separately had occurred to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein just weeks earlier in the aftermath of the firing of FBI Director James Comey. Evidence of a view widely shared in the law enforcement community that the president was violating well-established norms of behavior and breaking down barriers that are supposed to keep Justice Department investigations immune from political influence. We'll talk to Barrara about his decision-making process that day, about his new book called Doing Justice, A Prosecutor's Thoughts on Crime, Punishment, and the Rule of Law, and about his possible future as a top candidate to serve as attorney general in a future Democratic administration on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So uh, we finally got Preet Bharara, rock star prosecutor and podcaster, as uh, our guest. We've been trying to get him for months now, but he's got a book to sell, so that's always uh, Yeah, that was like he's a rival podcaster, so he probably was trying to you know keep yeah. our numbers down. But now, with him on the show, they're going to explode. Now, when he could capitalize on it. <laughs> but uh, before we get to him, so it's subpoena week in the House. As we speak, uh, the Judiciary Committee under Chairman Nadler is preparing to subpoena a full unredacted copy of the Mueller report. Nadler says he's tired of waiting around for Bill Barr, the attorney general, to go through it and redact whatever he's going to redact. Honestly, hasn't had to wait that long. We'll get to this in a second. Yeah. But his base is tired of waiting around for this. Exactly. (laughs) Well, they certainly weren't satisfied with the minimal conclusions we've gotten so far from Attorney General Barr. And everybody wants to see the underlying report, the evidence, the totality of what uh, Bob Mueller has gathered over the last two years. But before we get to that, there's this other remarkable story of the security clearances in which the House Oversight Committee has now just subpoenaed Carl Klein, the former White House personnel director, after hearing from a whistleblower who says that Klein repeatedly 
overturned her recommendations for rejections of the security clearance for high-ranking White House officials, unnamed in the letter, but I think we have reported that uh, uh, Jared Kushner and uh, Ivanka Trump are among them. And they're um, referred to in the letter as senior official number one and senior official number two, the daughter and son-in-law uh, <laughs> yes. uh, of, of, of the uh, president of, of the United States. They, what do they call him? He's uh, from the Southern D- District. He's he's uh, person number oh, what is uh, it? individual individual number one. Individual number one, right. Number one, right. So it strikes me that there's going to be quite the showdown on the security clearance issue because the White House is taking a very hard and fast position that they'll discuss what the general policies and guidelines were for security clearances. But when you get to actual individuals and what the adjudication of their security clearance was, they're not going to talk about it, that that's privacy protected. Privacy protected, but also uh, their argument is... Is, and it's not a crazy argument, but their argument is, is the president has an absolute right to make these determinations on who gets uh, security clearances and who doesn't. And so that is Congress obviously says that they have a an oversight responsibility here and they are going to push really hard to, to get more information out of the administration and get people to come up and testify. But that could end up in the courts as well, like everything else. Right, right. But the thing I want to say about this mm-hmm. is in some ways this feels like, you know, kind of like classic petty corruption, but that involves really important national security issues. This is favoritism, right? This is this is like giving <laughs> at, your relative minimum, you know, yeah. giving your relative letting your relatives bypass normal rules and processes so you can get it's, a security clearance. And this of, is and it's a thing of value. I mean this gives you cachet, it gives you a certain exclusivity and you know, potentially it gives you value for when you leave office for, you know, your business interests, because it's, using these, you know, you, having these clearances allow you to do all sorts of things you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. It's sort of the way government is conducted in Kazakhstan. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, it's just like nepotism, cronyism, all welded together. And, you know, the remarkable thing in that letter by Tricia Newbolt, who was the whistleblower, she worked in the White House Personnel Security Office. For, uh, by the way, going all the way back to administrations. So she's, she's right. non-political. Right. And she said that there were 25 instances of security clearance decisions being overturned to grant the security clearance when her office or the people in her office had recommended against it. And in the case of a senior official one, she cites the foreign influences, foreign influences. as well as other concerns, conflicts of interest, business associations. And the explanation given by Klein for reversing the determination to reject the uh, official's security clearance was, well, that involved activity before his federal service. Well, that's what every security clearance (laughs) process is about, investigating your service prior, what you did before you came to the government to determine whether you qualify for a security (laughs) clearance. And in the case of Jared Kushner, it would go right through the transition when he's meeting with the Russian ambassador and other Russian officials. I was an intelligence operative for a foreign rival before I joined the administration, (laughs) but But, now... now 
and you're not, so it's okay. Yeah, it's uh, quite but, but, bizarre. But but actually, I mean, you're raising a really important point because the scandal right now is that they were given these um, these clearances despite all of these questions that were raised in these reviews and these investigations. What we don't know is what those concerns were, right? Foreign right. influence, what does that mean? Right. And it seems to me that that is something that the Congress is going to have to try to figure out. That's what Nadler clearly wants to know beyond the fact no, that- No, this is Cummings. I'm it's, sorry, it's Cummings, Eli- Elijah Cummings, yeah. that's right. right. So it kind of begs the question, okay, well, what are the security concerns that would have or should have kept them from getting Well, I think we know in the case of Kushner, some of them certainly, uh, you know, like I said, his meetings during the transition with not just Russians, but, but also various uh, Middle Eastern characters, UAE, Saudi the, characters. The Chinese the trying Chinese to get his, his for, uh, properties uh, bailed right. out. There was the Chinese insurance company that was bailing out 666, his white elephant here in New York City. And also the reports that the intelligence community picked up, intercepts, I gather, that foreign governments, foreign government officials were talking about ways to exploit Jared Kushner and cultivate him for their own purposes because of his many vulnerabilities. So we know that about Jared. We don't really know about Ivanka. We and so don't are there similar questions about Ivanka and foreign influence? Well, I mean, certainly we know that she was certainly aware of the Trump Tower Moscow project that the Trump organization was pursuing while her father was running for president and even got involved at some point, uh, sent forwarded an email about it. So, you know, that could have been one of the potential concerns. We don't know. I don't know how this is going to play out because I can see a real showdown where Klein goes, he's now been subpoenaed, and he goes to appear before the committee and he gets asked about specific cases and he'll say, I've been directed by the White House not to discuss them and the committee will vote to hold him in contempt. And, uh, you know, this may end up going into the courts. That's how I see this playing out. I suspect so. Yeah. Uh, Now, at the same time, you have Nadler with the subpoena on the Mueller report. And uh, here, look. Nadler clearly is feeling pressure to pound the table and demand this document. It's hard to know how far it goes until we actually see what Barr produces. And the Justice Department is saying we'll see that very soon, by mid-April. Yeah. And then the question is going to be how much of it will be redacted. And the body language from Barr is that, you know, not a lot, but there are some areas, uh, and we're going to talk about this with Preet Prahara on the show, there's some areas they have to do their due diligence. You know, it's grand jury material, so-called 6E mm-hmm. information that by law cannot be disclosed unless you get a specific authorization right. from a judge. Right. You can go to the chief judge, Beryl Howell. We both remember when she was a on the staffer ju- on, on the, the Judiciary Senate Committee. Judiciary Committee, along with Preet Bharara, by the way, That's right. uh, who was uh, another former Judiciary Committee staffer. But yeah, they could go to her and try to get a release of the grand jury material. Then, you there's, know, cl- then there's classified information. There's classified information. And sources and methods. And that's an interesting question because There is a whole declassification process. I don't know if the attorney general has the autonomy to make those determinations on his own. So we'll have to see what happens there. Then there's also concerns about privacy rights for third-party individuals. And then finally, there are 
concerns about other investigations and whether this could somehow adversely affect other matters, ongoing matters. The hypocrisies on this issue are rife because you remember when Devin Nunes released his memo about the FISA process, uh, the FISA for Carter Page in the Russia investigation. And uh, the Democrats were aghast that sensitive law enforcement material and classified material were being released about a FISA warrant. If a FISA warrant had never before been publicly disclosed and the Democrats were pounding the table saying this was outrageous that the Republicans were introducing that. So you have, you know, arguably, hypocrisy on the side of the Democrats, but also for the Republicans, Nunes, who was uh, you know, pushing for full disclosure of something he thought could embarrass the FBI in the Russia investigation, now doesn't really care at all about the Mueller report. In fact, he said it should be burned and we don't have to see any of it. Right? Well, also, before the show, you pointed out a pretty rich irony about Jerry Nadler going yes. back to the, to the Monica Lewinsky era and Ken Starr's report. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I happened because I wanted to see Jared Kushner's interview on Fox News Monday night. I had the TV on Fox. And so when I turned it on Tuesday morning, there was Fox and Friends and they were playing a clip from Jerry Nadler in uh, 1998 complaining about the full release of the Star Report saying this contained grand jury material and information, derogatory information about uncharged third parties and how it outrageous it was that it was all being made public. But, you know. Times times, have changed. Times change, circumstances (laughs) change, and uh, people's perspectives change. I will point out on on this whole subject that uh, our guest, one of our guests from the podcast last week, Ben Wittes, wrote, I thought, a pretty reasonable piece in The Atlantic uh, about this whole question about whether as a lot of people, you're beginning to hear a lot of people on the left saying whether Barr is covering up the Mueller report because it's taken, you know, it'll, you know, a couple of weeks before it's been released and he's stonewalling and he's making up reasons why he shouldn't have to put it all out there. You know, Ben basically says Barr is a pretty reasonable mainstream lawyer and the idea that he wouldn't have a couple of weeks to go through the report carefully to make some of these difficult determinations just doesn't make sense. He also says that if the report comes out and it is fully, mostly redacted, then he'd be willing to criticize Barr, but let's give him the benefit yeah, of the Yeah, look, I think Barr is a serious lawyer, a serious prosecutor, but I don't know that I'd call him mainstream. He's pretty hardened partisan, extremely conservative, and, you know, I don't rule out the possibility that he is, or even the probability that he's doing everything he can to protect the president without violating what he sees as his a professional duty to um well yes yeah, uh, and, and, and by the way bill barr has always thought that that position as attorney general is both a legal position but also a political position and so right. to some extent i think he does believe that he is his role is to be political right so we should uh since we're interested in uh, uh reasoned prosecutorial judgments get to our guest preet barara We are joined now by Preet Bharara, former U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, author of Doing Justice. Preet, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. 
So and wait, Issachar and fellow podcaster. Oh right, fellow podcaster. Podcasts. What's the name of your podcast? Stay, stay tuned with Preet. Stay tuned. With okay, Preet. we can say Skullduggery was taken. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. um, all right. I want to start out with something that's not in your book, which probably a lot of people were expecting to be in your book, and that is the phone message you get from the White House on March 9th, 2017. This is the message that says the president of the United States wants to talk to you, and you decide not to return the phone call. But before <laughs> you do... You have a conversation with your deputy, June Kim, about returning the phone call and secretly taping the president. Well, you've, you've picked the sort of five seconds of contemplation that were the sexiest for podcast purposes to, of course. to start out <laughs> the, the episode, which is I yeah. totally understand and I respect. Which is a little bit of back, background. You know, so I've been asked to stay, which was unusual, if not unheard of, because normally when a new president comes in, particularly a president of another party, in an orderly fashion over the course of some period of months with a transitional period, all the U.S. attorneys appointed by the prior president leave. And I fully expected that to be the case with me. But for some reason, President-elect Donald Trump asked me to stay, even before he figured out who his secretary of state was going to be. So Southern District of New York is important, especially to people <laughs> who have served there. <laughs> who have, you think secretary who have state businesses comes, in New York. Well, so that, that's, yeah. you've, you've, you know, once again crystallized my thoughts perfectly, right. as Dave Letterman used to say. And he called me a couple of times before he got sworn in as president, and they were, you know, chatty phone calls in which he didn't say anything inappropriate or ask me to do anything inappropriate, but he gets your antenna up. You know, why is somebody who is about to take over the job as leader of the free world, so to speak, having time to call someone he doesn't know, doesn't have a relationship with, who's never worked for him, never worked with him, who happens to have jurisdiction over the Trump organization, the Trump foundation, various business interests, families' interests, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I reported all those contacts to the transition team, his transition team, and hoped and expected that once he actually took over as president that I wouldn't be getting calls because it can create awkwardness and an appearance of impropriety, even if nothing inappropriate was said in, in one of those phone calls. So he takes over, and you know, less than two months after the inauguration, as you mentioned, I get a call on March 9th, 2017. This is before I knew how much executive time there, there was, <laughs> and, and the, this kind of phone calling was not unusual for him. In some regards, but look, it was a weird thing to get this phone call, and we had heard the president make a point of complaining about and criticizing harshly, and making all sorts of accusations about that famous tarmac meeting between then Attorney General Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton when Hillary Clinton was on under investigation by the FBI, and you know Donald Trump himself, who some people say, well, he doesn't understand the protocols, he doesn't understand what the guidelines are, it's all new to him. That's bullshit. I can say that in your podcast, you right? Can say anything I don't curse on, on podcast. my podcast, but I figure yeah. skullduggery, I can say something. <laughs> yeah. um, also known as BS. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what is proper, what's not proper, because he won the presidency in part by yelling at rally after in front of tens of thousands of people. Right. So what do you think happened in that meeting? So now I'm thinking about whether or not I'm going to return the phone call to the president. While there are issues relating to the emoluments clause that's pending in the district, and other people are, are calling for, whether they're legitimate calls or not, but are calling for investigations of various things, it doesn't seem like a good idea for there to be an like, off-the-record, offline phone call between the sitting president and the U.S. attorney without an understanding of what it was going to be about, and without the attorney general involved or anyone from the Justice Department involved. It didn't seem like a good idea. And for a brief moment, we considered all our options. Recreate that five seconds, if that's what it was, conversation you had with June Kim about recording the president. 
So we went through the options. We said, well, I call him back. You play it out, right? You have to be thoughtful about these things. If I call him back and he decides to say something inappropriate, like asking me about a criminal case, and at the time we were investigating, this is publicly known, one or more people that he might not have liked who were in elective office, and he asked me to do something inappropriate or ask a question about that, that would be an awkward moment where I would have to end the conversation, maybe even make a report about the conversation, and I'm thinking, who's going to believe me? And this is before we knew about all the ways in which Donald Trump lies. He lies about the conversations he has with people. That's why people think about recording him, even his personal lawyer, even Omarosa, or they make contemporaneous records and notes about their conversation. So there's this concern if there's a, an untoward substantive message he wants to send me, that's a problem. Then we say, well, what if he calls and he just chit-chats like he did last time? Well, that's also, that's also not great because that is what I suspect happened with Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton, because I know Loretta Lynch, and I think she's a very, very honorable person with a lot of integrity and wouldn't have gone there with respect to the investigation. But that's not what people are going to think. And if it comes out later that Preet Bharara had had this conversation with the sitting president of the United States after having gone to Trump Tower and, you know, been offered his job, and then he's having these, you know, from time to time private phone calls, that's not going to be great either. And so for a moment, we said, well, one of the things we could do is we could have my assistant sit in on the call and you would have another witness, or June could sit in on the call. That doesn't necessarily prove anything if someone's going to lie about the conversation. And so at that moment, for, for a few seconds, and some people in the right get carried away with this as if like the mere thought of doing a thing means that you engage in some kind of treacherous activity, we thought about and then rejected the possibility of recording the president because we thought that's a bridge too far. But we did think about it because the concern was, you know, for both for my protection and the other party's protection, the other party being, you know, now individual one, that nothing untoward was spoken about, and there was no deal or request or ask made. He didn't ask me for my loyalty, et cetera, et cetera. It would have been nice to have a record. And we decided, you know what? None of that is going to be sufficient. And a recording seems like not quite cool to do. And so we didn't, and I didn't return the What's call. remarkable about it, though, is this is March. Now, it's just a few weeks after Rod Rosenstein... Oh, yeah. ...is having the same conversation yeah. or same thoughts. Which is why I think... And again, I'm speculating. I say everything I say these days, like I'm speculating. I don't know. Is the report coming out? Is it not? Um, I I credit the folks, Andy McCabe and others, who say that Rod Rosenstein wasn't joking, at least initially. And he thought about it like I thought about it. Because you know what? It was wacko time in the United States of America. And people forget. I'm sure you've talked about this. It was wacko time? Well, tense. There there are spikes in wackoness, right? I was just saying to somebody this morning, you have to go back and think what what was going through the minds of elected officials and members of the media and people who liked and believed in the Justice Department in the day and days following the surprise firing of Jim Comey. And maybe some people weren't thinking fully rationally, but people were really worried. And people really thought that you had an unhinged president who did that, then has this weird conversation with the Russians <laughs> about the nut job. Jim Comey, who had maybe made mistakes but served the country honorably. So, you know, in, in the same way that I, for a brief moment, after getting this bizarre phone call from the sitting president of the United States who has other things to do about God knows what, or maybe just wanting to cultivate me, we considered in a non-comical way, in a non-joking way, maybe to have a record of this, I should record it. I bet that, that Rod Rosenstein also had that thought. And I don't, I don't fully believe that it was a joke because of the, the state of tension and the state of shock that was 
pervasive through the government at that time. Well, Preet, you mentioned uh, Jim Comey, your former brother from the Southern District of New York. He, of course, um, was also asked for a, a <laughs> Trump famously invited him to the White House for dinner. Yeah, um, but early, all those things I on. all those things I found out about later. Right? No, I yeah. know, but I, I'm I guess my question is: Comey knew that that uh, there was a counterintelligence investigation into the Trump campaign. President is asking him for a private dinner. Do you think he should have gone? I mean, in retrospect, I think he probably so, thinks he shouldn't have. So, so that's a good question. I, I think the FBI director and the attorney general and some other people, the deputy attorney general, and you know this from all your your coverage and writing about the Justice Department in a very fine book. Uh, <laughs> which, Killer uh, Capture, by the way, still on Amazon. Hey, 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 hey. The book is doing justice <laughs> by Preet Bharara. Uh, yeah. Michael Isikoff, you got too many books. Whoa. You got too many books to talk about. Russian roulette. That, that <laughs> good title, by the way. I think the FBI director stands in a slightly different position because it is appropriate and, in fact, routine for FBI directors to have direct contact with a sitting president to advise on the threats, to talk about national security issues, because the FBI director is not only in charge and oversees you know, specific enforcement matters, which are a no-no for the president and the FBI director to talk about. You know, I, I believe Bob Mueller you know, briefed the presidents whom he served on a regular basis. So that's not, that's not a crazy thing. Obviously, given the nature of this president and the kinds of things that he likes to talk about uh, and the ways he likes to cultivate loyalty, you have to be a bit more cautious. But look, there's a theme that runs through you know, all people's meetings with the president that I've mentioned already. Whether they're allies, like Michael Cohen or Omarosa or others, or they're people who you're supposed to have some arm's length distance from, and they all want to document the phone calls, either by recording them, thinking about recording them, memorializing them right away, because you don't have any... The, the man... Look, this is not a partisan statement. The man lies. The man mischaracterizes not only what happens behind closed doors in meetings with people who wouldn't be able to prove what words were actually uttered. He lies about the things that he says on national television the next day, yeah. right? Whether it's in, in Helsinki or in any other context. A human being who so blithely lies about what he says and about what other people say, you know what? Intelligent, reasonable, cautious folks like to think about how to protect their own reputations in that context. And I got to say, when we finally saw Comey's memos about that meeting or the dinner he had with the president and what they talked about, it had nothing to do with terrorism threats facing the country or other major law enforcement issues. It was all about personal issues relating to the Russia investigation. Look, the guy, just to use a frivolous example, yeah. the president of the United States of America made a gaffe of no consequence at all. He called Tim Cook, Tim Apple. And the recording shows that he called him Tim Apple. And you know what his excuse was the next day? I actually said Tim Cook Apple. The cook was really fast <laughs> in the middle of Tim Apple. Which it wasn't. It wasn't there. <laughs> it wasn't there. So like, you know, just, just as people are listening and thinking, well, it's so outrageous. It's so crazy. You're thinking about recording the president. The guy lies about stuff that national television covers and records because he has that character. Yeah. All right, so we're going to get to the, the Mueller report, to Bill Barr's, the attorney general's involvement in that. Lots of meaty questions, legal questions to go over. But I do want to start with get to your book first. And one of the things that was striking to me, so after you're fired and you, um, over time, you know, start speaking out about the rule of law, about some of the things that this president's been doing, you're on cable television, you've you know, got a big platform and, and strong views on these issues, you become a bit of a hero of the resistance. 
And, you know, I think you were recently uh, referred to in the New York Times by someone who reviewed your book as her podcast husband because she loves your podcast so much and considers it a kind of lifeline. And then you write this book and you barely mentioned uh, Donald Trump in it. I'm just kind of curious why you talk about wanting to return to first principles. Yeah, because you know what? Sometimes you get tired of talking about Donald Trump. And his antics. We don't. And I, well, look, but, but there's different forums for different things. I talk a bit about Donald Trump and the things that he says on a regular basis. There's Twitter for that. That's 280 characters. I had 104,000 words. That's not as long as it sounds. It's a very unintimidating, <laughs> slender book. And I thought, you know, I have my podcast for that. And, you know, you talk about it on the podcast. But I thought if I was going to write something that had some more enduring quality, that, you know, the things that matter to the rule of law and to equal application of justice and to fairness and open-mindedness, all those things exist and are true in the presence or absence of Donald Trump. And sometimes, you know, there's an implicit criticism just by talking about things that are important, things that are right. No, Donald Trump's name was never uttered famously at John McCain's funeral. But it's an interesting phenomenon now, right, in America, that if you have some event or you have some text that talks about principle or talks about dignity or talks about the rule of law, or talks about decency, that people take that as a rebuke of the, of the president. So some people will take this book as that. Somebody in, in the media referred to the book in a review, and I hadn't thought of it this way, referred to it as a sort of metaphorical survivor's guide to the Trump era, even though Trump is barely mentioned. And I suppose it is a little bit of that. And it's unfortunate that such a thing may be necessary as we hear people who are around a president denigrating the media, denigrating the independent judiciary, denigrating law enforcement, denigrating his own intelligence community, favoring the views and the conclusions of people like Vladimir Putin, an adversary of the United States, over the people in his own intelligence community, using phrases like alternative facts, having people around him say things like, truth isn't truth. I mean, I think people are are uneasy and unsettled for a lot of reasons. The book is an effort to go back to sort of first principles of how fairness is accomplished. You you seem to make the case in this book that the one place in our society right now, in our culture, where kind of Trumpism has a hard time getting in is in is in a criminal trial where you have... In any kind of court proceeding. You have process, you have the adversarial process, which is a search for truth, you have rules, you have a judge who is a kind of umpire. Talk a little bit about that, and then I wonder if you're worried at all that over time, what Trump has been doing, I mean, the erosion of truth, the elevation of, of conspiracy theories could actually seep into the courtroom, into the justice system. So, yeah, I think about this a lot. And I'll draw a comparison among and draw a line through some people that Trump either has, you know, brought on board his team over the course of years or has otherwise praised and embraced. And you have these people, I call them clowns. They include people like Roger Stone, like Michael Cohen, like Paul Manafort, Alex Jones, who you know, Donald Trump has embraced and praised vigorously, even though he's probably one of the most odious human beings on earth. You know, the, the, the person who runs InfoWars and has claimed that the Sandy Hook massacre was staged and it's all actors. And all those guys, right, they appear on cable television, they go on podcasts, they have their own shows, and they talk smack, and they talk nonsense, and they hurt people, they bring people pain, and they, they foster these conspiracy theories, and there's no accountability, and they don't care. And because there's no arbiter, they get away with saying all sorts of nonsense, and then they, you know, they sell nutritional supplements or whatever they, they Not sell. Not only that, but, but there are incentives for them to say these things. Yeah, in, no, in correct. And it inflames people and all sorts of conspiracies about child trafficking rings and pizza shops and everything else. And then, and then you know what? On occasion, they have the obligation to appear in a court or at a deposition. 
And you know what happens to the clowns? They shut up. Most recently, Alex Jones, there's this great article in the paper in the last week about, you know, the Alex Jones deposition, which was allowed to go forward, where this odious, disgusting person who blithely told all these lies, brought all this pain to the families of victims at Sandy Hook and other places. Now he's in a court proceeding, you know, a deposition, not a court proceeding, but related to a court proceeding. And now he's backpedaling and he's backtracking and he's chagrined. And he's, you know, claiming that he had some mental malady that caused him to say these odious things. Roger Stone, another example. Here's like the king of nonsense who goes on television, you know, barks at the anchors, says whatever he wants to say. And you know what? Now he's under arrest and he's fighting to stay free and on bail pending trial. And he gets before a no-nonsense judge. And what does he do? He apologizes profusely, almost on bended knee, right? Another clown, Michael Cohen. Whatever you think of him, if he's like the, the, the savior of, of, <laughs> d- of democracy because he will, you know, turn state's evidence against the president or not, that guy is a documented thug and a proven convicted liar who went about self-styled fixer for Donald Trump. And you know what happens when he gets to a court of law and he gets convicted? He's, he's an apologetic, demure, almost sort of beaten man appearing before Congress. You might not buy that story, but that to me is a little bit hopeful that there's at least some place... Where, where clowns and idiots and, and people who bring so much pain to other people and undermine truth, there's a place that's sort of, sort of an oasis where you have to tell the truth, otherwise there are consequences. Your lawyers have to tell the truth, otherwise there are consequences. And you have to argue based on facts, not just fear and not just emotion. You can't just, walk, as I say in the book, in a, in a chapter about trials and why trials are something to be proud of in this country, you're not allowed to attack other people's arguments based on you know, racist uh, views. You can't say, well, he's Mexican, so he must have raped the girl. You can't get away with that. And that's something to be celebrated. Well, and let me, one just one just quick follow up on this, because ultimately it's the judges who are enforcers of these rules. And Donald Trump is going to have the you know ability to fill the bench with you know hundreds of federal judges. I wonder if you've seen any suggestion at all that the kinds of people that he's appointing might in some ways erode these values, or if you're comfortable with uh, with the kinds of judges that are going to appoint to the federal bench. Well, the issue with Trump's judges, I don't think, generally speaking, is about, and I haven't studied it deeply, the, the issue is not a concern about how, what they think about decorum in the courtroom and whether or not they will allow people to argue non-meritorious things at a trial and to engage in character assassination when you're supposed to base your arguments on evidence. It's more, I think, two categories of thing. One is, particularly in the appellate world, where ideology seems to matter a little bit more, that he's appointing people who are, you know, far of the mainstream people who had their confirmation hearings are not comfortable even saying that Brown v. Board of Education was correctly decided. Now, is that that different from what Mitt Romney would have done or Jeb Bush would have done? Like, I don't know. I mean, I think his Supreme Court appointees probably are the same as they would have been under another president. There's another category that I'm concerned about more, not as large a category, and that is, I don't remember the exact statistics, I used to know them, but we've had an increase, uh, I think an unprecedented increase in the number of judges being nominated who are deemed not qualified by the American Bar Association. And, you know, whatever you thought of of judges from prior administrations, Democrat and Republican, by and large, you might have thought some of them were too left or some of them were too right. They were qualified. They had experience. They were seasoned. And you have some people who don't don't have any idea what a courtroom looks like. And I worry a little bit about those people, some of whom have have had to withdraw, whether they understand what proper courtroom procedure and and culture should be. Let me me, uh, ask you about something else you write about in the book that's 
highly relevant to events right now, and that is in your chapter, Walking Away. You went after some pretty big targets as U.S. Attorney, uh, the Cuomo administration, Mayor de Blasio, and you ultimately didn't bring charges. And then you talk about what the prosecutor's obligation is when you don't indict. Now, as you know, Chairman Nadler at House Judiciary is demanding a full unredacted copy of the Mueller report. Everything that's in the Mueller report, including grand jury, including classified, it all should be turned over. Now, in your book, when you write about what the prosecutor's obligations are, uh, you talk about uh, prosecutors can get into deep trouble if they talk too much about a decision not to prosecute. After all, the subject has a right to fairness, also to be free from prosecutorial slander. You owe it to the system and to the guidelines of the department, as well as to the presumed innocent party you chose not to charge to keep your mouth shut. So under that principle that you lay out in your book, should the full Mueller report be turned over to Congress and be made public? Yeah, so I think it's an interesting question. I think there's a distinction between the president and everyone else. Uh, and I think it's an important distinction. I am open to arguments about redactions for issues like classified information or ongoing investigations, and also potentially, depending on what they are and how much damage they might do, because everything is within reason and it's all prudential. Within reason, you know, being somewhat protective of. Uh, you know, negative derogatory information about third parties who don't have the position of the president. So those are precisely the categories that Attorney General Barr has said he will consider redacting. And I know a lot of people have criticized that. My concern is if those are good faith reasons, and depending on the particular facts in the particular categories and the particular people, it's all based on those things, right? That's how you make decisions. And I talk a lot about you have to look at each circumstance directly, not just sort of generalize. And if that's in good faith, I think there may be an argument for it. But my worry is that it's pretextual. And given the way that the president has talked about the case and the investigation, given how, how much he sort of misrepresented what, what the investigation showed, how much retaliatory uh, vigor there is against the people who have not said anything incorrect, like everyone asking Adam Schiff to resign, that if you're using those categories of thing as an excuse to protect the president, or to present some kind of, you know, wonderful optics on behalf of the president, then that's wrong, and it's terrible, and I think it's unethical. The reason I say the president is different from everyone else, in your standard criminal case, it's a binary choice, and and the only thing you can do is you can prosecute or not prosecute. If it happens to be true, as we know it to be, that there is a, you know, a steadfast policy, whether you like it or not, and a lot of people tend not to like it, that you can't indict and prosecute a sitting president well, then you could say, well, what was the whole point of the president being someone under suspicion by the special counsel? If not for it to be the role of some other party, for example, a co-equal branch of government like the Congress, to take stock of what that investigation was. It doesn't make, it, any, doesn't make that, any sense at all. It, and by the way, the president also, so there's two things that are unique about the president. One, he has this shield in, uniquely among any human being in America. He has the unique shield of this policy of the Justice Department, which means that on the one hand, you can't have derogatory information against him put out in public, as they say. On the other hand, he has complete immunity because of this policy. And the second difference for the president is he not, he's not the only person with this, uh, subjected to this, but he's one of very few, that there's a method and mechanism of accountability in the Congress for someone like him, not for Michael Isikoff, not for Dan Clyde, but not for me, 
but for the president. And the, a combination of having immunity from the Justice Department and a constitutionally sanctioned uh, mechanism for accountability in the Congress and the whole idea of having this investigation in the first place, which was launched, special counsel was put in place because of the action of the president. And that, and by the way, that mechanism is inherently political. You're talking Correct. about impeachment. Correct. And if it's political, then Paulus is the people, and so it has to be public. All right, but look, look, that. every chief executive has accountability. When you, you went after Cuomo, you didn't bring charges. You went after de Blasio, you didn't bring charges. You could have referred your prosecution report or memos to the state legislature or the city council, but you yeah. never considered that. No, I don't think it was proper to do. Look, here's what I think about the Mueller, the lack of decision on obstruction. I, mean, I don't know if this is true or not, but I'll tell you how I think about it. Had I been investigating, I'm just going to use you, Michael. Please. If I've been investigating <laughs> Michael Isikoff for, probably for, have for, for obstruction, for, well, for I'm not going to talk about that. Right, yeah. I'm just going to something like obstruction. Yeah. Don't worry, you could get Rudy and you'd say it's not a crime because podcasters have absolute authority to obstruct. <laughs> immunity. Uh, immunity from, from <laughs> Podcast immunity. And Because this happened. I mean, I had, a, I had a case once. I won't mention the name of the entity or the individual. And, and I've been thinking about it a lot over the last week. And it was a difficult case and it was a complex financial case. And the career prosecutors put together a memorandum for me and my deputy. Maybe it was 30, 40 pages long. It was very well done. And I'm reading it. I don't jump to the end. I don't want to see what the conclusion is. But I'm reading it, and they're, they're, they're setting forth all the facts. The investigation had gone on for more than 12 months. And they're setting forth the reasons in favor of a prosecution, why a crime was committed. And then there's a section that talks about what the potential defenses are, some of which you know, seem viable and the merits of those defenses. And I'm, and I'm, I'm very interested, and I'm getting to the end of it. And I, go, what are, I wonder what the recommendation is going to be. You know, in light of all these circumstances, we think that we recommend prosecution, we recommend declining. And they didn't have such a conclusion. And so I called them in. I said, what's going on here? And it was one of the, I think it only happened a couple of times. It was one of the only times they said, you know, it's such a close question. We wanted to have a discussion about it. And we didn't want you to prejudge. And we, we are just, we are not sure. And we wanted to not just have this in writing. We wanted to have a discussion. And you know what we decided? Because it was a standard criminal case. It didn't involve the president. You know, private parties. We said, I think in, in a criminal case, when the question is close, the benefit of the doubt goes to the target. And we shut the case down, and we didn't talk about it, and you don't know who I'm talking about. And we wouldn't disclose the memo, and the Justice Department would fight disclosing the memo. I think what happened with Bob Mueller is an ordinary case, and he, it was too close a question on obstruction with respect to Michael Isikoff. They would have shut it down and be done with it. I think the president stands in a different position. The investigation was started because of a president's but action. But were you that, surprised that Mueller didn't make a call on this? It I'm seems trying to, to me explain why that he was did his it. job. <laughs> but, but, I mean, he, was, he wasn't yeah. hired to be the FBI director collector of the evidence. He was hired to make a prosecutorial decision. He was hired to, I, I, maybe. I think that's, that's a good way of putting it, and probably that's how I thought about it. I'm trying to, after the fact, explain the, the, the decision-making and the final product of someone who I trust a lot and who I think is trying to do the right thing and whose team, I think, is very thorough and has integrity. And because the president is different, and because there's, as, as Dan keeps saying, there's a method and a mechanism of political accountability, Okay, he wanted to leave it to those folks. Okay, so right. So that begs the obvious question. Should Bill Barr have stepped in and made that decision? Or do you think that Mueller's expectation was that this was a decision that ultimately would be made by Congress what to do, and that his, what he was trying to do was put this in the political sphere. I think so. I think so. Um, look, a different special counsel might have had that intent and also made it impossible 
for it to be otherwise. I mean, a different special counsel could have put in the report, which I'm guessing is not in there because it would have been difficult not to quote it. You know, for all these reasons, for the reasons that, you know, some version of what I articulated, hypothetically, that the stakes are so high, the issue is so fraught, this is a matter for the political branches as contemplated by the founders in the Constitution, for them to handle. That's what I'm doing. I'm setting this... But he he doesn't say that. So you might criticize him for not anticipating that Bill Barr would swoop in. Well, we don't actually know what he said. We don't. We don't. Again, all of this could be proven wrong. I'm inferring certain things because there's some things that... Bill Barr is a shrewd lawyer. He's pretty smart. And he does put one thing in his summary letter that's damaging to the president. And if he, and, and I think he puts it in there because he couldn't have gotten away with not putting it in there. And that is what we've been discussing. On the, on the issue of obstruction, Bill Barr quotes from a subsection of a sentence saying this does not exonerate the president. I think if there was some similar language, it's a guess, some similar language on the part of the special counsel expressing a clear intent to punt to Congress, if he had that language in there, that language would be in the Barr letter. Now, if it is in the report and it's not in the Barr letter, then you should have me back and we can bash Bill Barr for, for a good period of time. Yeah, we will do that. Who's your candidate for president? I don't have one. Well, uh, let me ask it another way. In, <laughs> whose, in whose administration would you like to serve as attorney general? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a podcast host and, a, and now a best-selling author. <laughs> <laughs> and when when those sales die down, which could happen at any moment, yeah, and they'll will, happen soon. I unless, can assure hey, you. Hey, what yeah. kind of what kind of pessimism is that? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, look, I like public service, and and I and I was in public service for seventeen over seventeen years, mostly in law enforcement. A few years in the Senate, as you know, right. and I would entertain possibilities. But you know, I, I like I like a lot of the candidates. I like the idea that, that people think about the rule of law. Come on, but you, they must be reaching out to you because they like to form, like, advisory no. committees. No, on... I've, I've had one candidate, I can tell you, the one candidate that I've had on my podcast, yeah. and his huge bump coincided with his appearance on my podcast. I don't think that's a coincidence. That was Mayor Pete? Pete Buttigieg, say the whole mm-hmm. name. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, well, it's say a now. little tough. But, Pete Buttigieg. Know. Yeah. He's the person that I've spoken to the most, and we were both backstage together when we did the uh, Bill Maher's Real Time last week. Yeah. I think he's a really smart person. By the way, oh, I yeah, watched but... that, and you said almost nothing. Well, I wasn't in asked a lot. <laughs> I mean, you were like, you <laughs> know, what was Bill, it? That Bill turned away Sullivan from me. Said, yeah, yeah, what yeah, am what I, am I a, potted a potted plant? plant? You were the potted plant on the Bill Maher show. I know. Well, well, you got you got your, your letters. Send your letters to Bill Maher. Speaking <laughs> of Buttigieg, one of the things that he's—I don't think he's endorsed this idea, but he certainly seems to like it, is putting more people on the Supreme, more justices on the Supreme Court. I think the plan is to have the Republican appointees, the Democratic appointees would have to have a consensus about five other appointees or something yeah. like that. Is that something yeah, that you I, think that's, is workable? It just seems very difficult and unrealizable. I, I think there's more, I've been thinking about this, and I don't have a firm view, and I'm not running for anything, nor can I run for president. So stop all your entreaties, everyone. That was a joke, <laughs> uh, mostly from my mom. I think what's more workable and seems to have more merit is the idea of uh, of limits on terms because you have you have a very skewed Supreme Court for Supreme Court justices for Supreme Court yeah. justices only and I don't know if it's eighteen years and how you stagger them and maybe that's too difficult also but you do have a little bit of this game and the vagaries of who passes away when and if people you know try to stick it out for an extra year because maybe the next president will be more amenable and that creates you know weird moral hazards I think that are not great. And you have, I used to know the stat off the top of my head during the Kavanaugh process, but if you look at the past 50 years or so, the number of years that Republicans have been in control has been more of the, of the White House than Democrats, but it's still way out of proportion to the number of nominees that Republicans have gotten a little bit 
because it is the luck of you know the Grim Reaper, <laughs> and when he comes along. And on the note of the Grim Reaper, uh, <laughs> we will uh, thank uh, Preparar for joining us, and we will have you back to bash Bill Only Barr way, or clear, Bob Mueller. Just to be clear, or, look, if I, I don't, yeah. I, I would find it remarkable that that a smart lawyer like Bill Barr would engage in a blatant misrepresentation or intentional omission of the plan and expectation that Bob Mueller had about who should make the decision about obstruction. If he did that, then yes, we will bash. Okay. And we will be here <laughs> to hear your bashing. Thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Thanks very much. Thanks for having Thanks, me. Thanks, Preet. Yeah. Thanks to Preet Bharara for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.